Turn if you would. Turn if you would to the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew. We are continuing our study through the book of Matthew. In fact, we're just getting started in the book of Matthew. We started in chapter 1 with a discussion of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham, that through him all the nations would be blessed, and the promise that was made to David that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. Matthew is going to present Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies. We then met a boatload of other people as we worked through the genealogy between Abraham and the birth of Jesus. We then met the wise men as they came to worship Jesus, and we met Herod. We had a discussion about where Herod came from and his lineage, and Joseph took the child after being told by the Holy Spirit that Herod's going to come get you, and they went to Egypt. They returned to Egypt after Herod died. And then we met John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was in the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If Jesus is the king, the fulfillment of the promises to David. If he is the king, he has to have a kingdom. And John says, there is someone coming after me who I'm not worthy even to tie his shoes. And then Jesus shows up and comes to John and says, baptize me. And John goes, why? Why would I do such a thing? And last week we had a long discussion of baptism. I presented the views of various different churches about what they um, think baptism is and what it does for you. Then we had a discussion of the nature of Christ, the fact that Christ is fully God and fully human. And then we had a discussion about the Trinity. That's where we ended up last week because after he was baptized... The Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son. Hmm, kind of strange. We pick it up in chapter 4, and we're going to meet one more guy. Well, he's kind of a guy. We are going to meet Satan. We are going to meet the devil. Now, it is interesting, the cover story in this month's Atlantic magazine is about why is it that Americans believe such weird things. Now, it's really talking about Donald Trump, but on the way to getting there, it talks about all the weird stuff we believe. You know, UFOs, Satan, demons, angels. Why would we believe that stupid stuff? So the first thing we need to know as we talk about Satan is that he really exists. There is, in fact, angelic beings that rejected God's leadership and fell. There are demonic forces at work in the world today, at work in the world throughout history. Now, it's going to be interesting because as we work through the life of Christ, he's going to have a lot of encounters with demonic forces to the point that you begin to think they're everywhere. Well, it is 
commonly accepted that if the Son of God shows up in human form at some point in history, and he did, that the demonic forces would view that as a pivotal event in history, and whatever power they had, they would concentrate it at that point in history. It shouldn't surprise us that the demonic forces were working against Christ, against those who were accepting Christ or not accepting Christ. They were alive and well, and Jesus is going to face them. And we're going to see that in today's lesson. Let's start chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is just odd to begin with. He just was baptized. John the Baptist had been saying wonderful things about him. He is dunked in the water in the river. The Spirit of God descends upon him, and a voice says, This is my Son. And the next event is for the Spirit to lead him into the wilderness. And not just for a vacation, he led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why would he do such a thing? We know from the scriptures that God himself does not tempt us. He doesn't show up and say, you want to sin? But we also know that God allows Satan the ability to tempt human beings. We see this most notably in the life of Job, where God is bragging about Job, and Satan says, well, of course he's following after you. You gave him a lot of stuff. I mean, anybody would follow you if you gave him enough stuff. Take away his stuff, and he won't follow you. And God gives Satan permission to test Job. Now, let's think about that for just a moment. Because the first misconception we have about Satan is that he doesn't exist. You know, it's just some grand mythological term that we apply to evil that we don't understand. That's the first myth that we have about Satan. Satan is alive and well. But the second myth misunderstanding that we have is that somehow he is the equivalent of God. There's God on one side fighting for good, and there's Satan on the other side fighting for evil, and they are equal in power, strength, and influence, and all of humanity, all of the world, is the battlefield for two equal forces fighting it out. But that's not true at all. Satan is a created being. Just like you and I are created beings. He is an angelic being, which means he is spirit, not body. But he is created. He is not equivalent to God in power and in influence. There actually is a religion known as Zoroasterism. 
Uh, it's a Persian religion, and it was actually in existence before Christ was born. And it does preach that there is a good and a bad, and they're equal, and they're duking it out. All of history is good, evil, fighting. And who's going to win? Well, we hope good's going to win. But you never can be sure. That is not the way we understand Satan. Satan is a created being who operates within the sphere that God allows him to work. Which begs the next question. Why does he give him any space at all? I mean, he rejected God? Just squish him like a bug and be done with it. Wouldn't that be great? Well, the first answer to that is, who are we to question what God does? But we won't go there. If God is going to allow we as human beings to choose, then there has to be an alternative to following God. Jesus, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, is going to be tempted by Satan. Why? Because we are tempted, and we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a high priest that was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. But we sometimes skip the first part of this. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit descended on him. Why did he do that? We talked about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Different persons, one being. Why would Jesus follow the Holy Spirit? Because he's demonstrating to you and me how we are to live our lives. Jesus, the human, followed the Spirit just like we have the ability, the authority to follow the Spirit in order to live a life that is pleasing to God. Jesus says, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, that's easy for him to do. He's God. But he didn't use any power that is not available to you and me. We're going to work through this passage. You're familiar with it. He is going to be tempted. He is going to respond by quoting scripture back at the devil. Guess what? We are led by the Spirit. We have the same scripture the same authority to quote it back to the devil. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What is it with these guys in the wilderness? We had John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now, John the Baptist had a mob of people with him. Why? Because they came to him to hear his message. He was a prophet. There hadn't been a prophet, a true prophet, for 400 years. They wanted to hear what he said. But in general, people go to the wilderness to get away from all the people. 
to get alone, to get alone with God. Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's one of those great understatements. <laughs> We're actually going to have a lesson about fasting when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Because it tells us, when you fast, this is how you're supposed to do it. You know, you're not supposed to let people know you're doing it. You're not supposed to walk around like I'm starving. You're not supposed... But the passage says, when you fast, do this. It doesn't say, if you fast, do this. We'll have a whole lesson about that later. I have been told... I have no experience with this at all. That you can, in fact, fast for 40 days. You can go without food. You get to the point. I mean, you need water, that kind of thing, to keep your body functioning. But that your body actually, you know, kind of gets used to it for a while. And then after a 40-day period, it's like, ooh, I'm hungry again. And at that point, if you don't eat, you die. Okay? We do have instances in the scripture of people doing miraculous fasting where they have neither food nor water for 40 days and will accept the fact that God can provide the nutrients some way to keep you alive. So Jesus has gone into the wilderness for 40 days and it happens to make this little statement, he was hungry. He was famished. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. Why is that important? Hmm? We would be. It demonstrates the humanity of Jesus. He's God, but he's human. He has all the attributes of God. He has all the attributes of humanity. He gets to the end of the 40 days and he is starving. I also believe it is setting up this temptation to be the worst case scenario. What do I mean by that? We had a brief discussion last week, just a very brief discussion, that I would like to elaborate. We're going to think, as Jesus is being tempted here, that it's no big deal. Okay? He's God. It's no big deal. He isn't really suffering like I suffer when I'm tempted. I mean, when I'm tempted, I just can't. But he didn't have that. My idea is that he had it worse than whatever you have. Why? Because as I enter this path of temptation, at some point, unfortunately, at some point I might give in. How much further would the temptation have gone? I have no idea. I gave in way back here. I mean, hey, was it? Marilyn Monroe or somebody that said, I don't, I mean, I don't like giving in to temptation, but what else can you do with it? <laughs> don't think about that too long. <laughs> we really have no idea of how far it would have gone had we not yielded to the temptation. Jesus knew. Jesus knew 
what it took to get to the end of the temptation and to not give in. And in doing so, he is demonstrating to us how to do that. Secondly, he's all alone. As a general rule, we as believers are called to live in community. Why? Because when we're out there by ourselves, we are more susceptible to temptation. And thirdly, he was just physically exhausted. He was starving to death. And I don't know about you, but I know when I am physically weak, the devil goes, ah, I can use that. I can do something with that. And it makes us more susceptible to temptation. So Jesus is alone. Jesus is hungry. And Satan himself shows up to tempt him. Traditionally, the scripture teaches that there are three things that tempt us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the world's way of looking at things. The scripture says, don't be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world has a way of doing things, and we have a tendency just to give in to that. The flesh is that sin nature that is in us, and we saw in the book of Romans that even after we become believers, our bodies are still programmed to respond the way we responded before. And the flesh works, and we have to overcome that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the demonic forces themselves. Now, I'm of the personal belief that I have enough trouble with the world and the flesh, and I don't really need demons tempting me, but they're there. And we see them throughout Scripture. Our uh, family has been working through reading books this summer, this year. You know, we pick a book a month and read it. And a couple of months ago, we reread The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read them, go read them. They're a set of letters written by a senior demon to an under-demon about how to tempt people. Okay? Very interesting stuff. But in the introduction, in the introduction, C.S. Lewis says that we have two problems that we fall into when we talk about demons. The first we've already mentioned, which is to pretend they don't exist. The second is to give them too much authority, too much power, and too much influence in the world. Oh, they're everywhere. I talked to a girl one time, and she was, she was actually dating a friend of mine, and the friend of mine wanted me to evaluate her to see if her beliefs were too wacko. And she was under the impression that, you know, you get a cold. Well, that's a demon of colds. You know, you're stuck in traffic. That's the demon of traffic. You get mad. That's the demon of anger. And I'm going, mm. We give the demon too much power or we pretend they don't exist. That's why it's important that we study all of the scripture and learn that they do in fact exist. But they don't, they don't have authority over God. Okay? He's gone out into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit. 
He has fasted for 40 days and he's hungry. That's the situation. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, let's think about this situation right here. Number one, could Jesus have turned the stones into loaves of bread? Yes. Without question, he could have done it. Is there a command anywhere in the Scripture that says, Thou shalt not turn stones into bread? Not to the best of my knowledge. You can work your way through the Ten Commandments. There's not an eleventh one that says, Thou shalt not turn stones into bread. But notice what Satan is doing. Forty days prior to this, forty in a couple of days, Jesus had been baptized. He came up out of the water, the Spirit descended, and God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What is Satan doing? Did God really say you were the Son of God? Did he really say that? If you really are the Son of God, prove it. Show me. More than that, show yourself to be the Son of God. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the Garden. God says, it's all yours. Eat anything you want. Except for one tree in the Garden. Don't eat that one. And Satan shows up in the form of a serpent. Now we know that the serpents were very different at this point because the whole crawling on their bellies was the curse that came afterwards. Satan shows up and he says, did God really say that? No. God's not telling you the truth. Satan wants you to doubt what God has told you is true. The voice from heaven had told Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan comes along and says, I don't think so. Could be. I don't know. Try it. Do it. Prove that what God says is true is true. You're not going to just do it because God says it, are you? You're not just going to believe it because some voice from heaven said it, are you? Prove it. Prove it. Show me. We could almost make the argument. I won't think about it too long, but we could almost make the argument that the ground of every sin is 
did God really say? Hebrews tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God, for those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. That is, it's always better to do things God's way. But did God really say that? Did God really say that you should love your enemies? That sounds really stupid. That one over there is really bad. I'd hate them if I were you. God doesn't know what he's talking about. God doesn't understand this situation. He's not here. He's not. And that's what Satan tries to do to us. To convince us that God does not really have our best interest in mind. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There is an interesting discussion that I have in my head. I think about strange things every once in a while. (laughs) How much does Satan really know about who Jesus is? Okay? I think he knows a lot. Later on... Jesus is going to be casting out demons, and the demons know who he is. Okay? We may not know who he is, but the demons know. Does Satan think at this point he can win? The answer to that question, I think, is yes. Satan is a deceiver. And when we set out to deceive others, the first thing we do is deceive ourselves. I think he thinks he can win. Which brings to the next question, and I'll just throw this out. Don't raise your hands. (laughs) Could Jesus have yielded to the temptation? It's interesting. One time I was teaching a much smaller class, and I asked this question, and I handed out pieces of paper. Yes or no? Could he or couldn't he? And you know how the voting came back? Right down the middle, down to the vote. Half said yes, half said no. Could he have yielded to the temptation? And I will give you my standard answer. Yes and no. (laughs) Oh, you knew that was coming. As a human being... As a human being, Jesus had all the equipment necessary to yield to every temptation, just like you and I have. As God, as holy as God is, it would have been repulsive to him to do so. It was interesting because after doing this vote, I was talking with my mother about this passage and about the fact that the vote came down right in the middle. And she said, the way I look at it is I could run off and have an affair. But my love for my husband is so strong, the idea of doing that is repulsive. Now, We are weak, fallible human beings. Could Jesus have yielded to the 
the temptation. As a human being, he had everything necessary to do it. And Satan saw, that's the weakness, I can get him. Did Satan really understand how much was God and how much was man? I think he was deceiving himself. If you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. How does Jesus respond? But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Go ahead. I can find the difference here. Satan had to prove something to himself, but Jesus didn't have to prove anything to anyone. That's an interesting point. She said that Satan had to prove something to himself, but Jesus had nothing to prove. He was who he was, and he knew who he was. Man shall not live by bread alone. How does Jesus respond to the temptation? By saying, it is written. It is written. Every one of these three temptations He is going to respond, it is written. The scripture says, and he is going to quote something out of the book of Deuteronomy. How many of you have quoted the book of Deuteronomy this week? (laughs) I would hate to ask, how many of you have quoted any scripture this week? Yeah, but Satan didn't show up. To tempt me, or I would have. (laughs) Trust me. You were tempted multiple times this week. Multiples of multiples of times this week. Half the time, you just gave in. Because you've done it so often, you didn't even know it was a temptation. Somebody pulls in front of you in traffic. You lay on the horn. You yell some choice biblical words at them. Being blessed is not it, no. (laughs) And you don't even know that you've reacted just like the world has taught you to react. Jesus, are you ready for this? Jesus knew the scripture. Hmm. We're going to cheat. No, we're not going to cheat. I, I, I kind of got into this idea of, you know, you know, he did write the book, right? Or was kind of involved in it. Maybe that's cheating. But as a child, he learned the scripture just like you and I are capable of learning the scripture. Oh, I could never learn it like that. Well, you never tried. You never tried. How do I know that? Because I'm the same way. The average person in the United States watches three and a half hours of television a day. That number is actually going down. It's going down because people are watching their computers. (laughs) Not because the world's getting better. Okay? And how much do we spend studying the scripture? And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. 
You know, we think it's really cool if we spend 15 minutes in the morning working through the Scripture. And that's good. Do it. But does it surprise us that we don't know the Scripture when the temptation comes? We don't say it is written. Don't do that. That's what Jesus did. It is written, you can't live by bread alone. Now, remember, he's hungry. God made us to be dependent upon food. I read an article years ago about Eritarians. They believe that all the nutrients you need, you can get through the air. You don't have to eat. Then they caught the head Eritarian eating a burger. His argument was, well, the air is polluted, so you can't really get off. God created us to eat. You really do need bread. But it was never meant to be your reason for existence. The meaning of your life cannot, cannot be found in material things. And that's what he's telling Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. It's kind of funny. He's quoting a scripture about the importance of the scripture. I was reading a book this week, and it had a discussion in there about um, discipleship. This church did this huge, massive study. And you know what? The discipleship tool that works, it's really the effective one. Sit down with your Bible and a pencil and a pad of paper. And don't get up until God speaks to you. The Bible is, is the transforming force in our society. The Word of God. There are people who complain, oh, well, you're just worshiping the Bible. No, we're worshiping God who gave us words about himself and about how he operates and what he expects from us. And it is the Word of God. Man cannot live by material things alone. There is no eternal value in only studying and only being interested in the material world. True life comes through every word that is spoken from the mouth of the Father. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Some uh, theologians will dispute whether this is actually physically taking him up there or whether it is a vision. Okay, I'm going to say he's really up there. Takes them up to the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, If you are the Son of God, jump. Throw yourself down, for it is written. Guess what? Satan knows his scripture too. He does. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on the hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is from the book of Psalms. You're the son of God. God's going to take care of you. Don't you want to know that God's going to take care of you? Don't you want to have that 
confidence for the rest of your life that in fact you are the Son of God? Jump. Question. If he had jumped, would the angels have caught him? Or would he have gone splat? We don't know. Because he's not going to fall for it. What does he say? Fall for it? You got that? (laughs) Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God, you said, I am the Son of God. But God, I don't trust you. God, I don't trust you. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to test you. I'm going to jump, and you'd better catch me. Question. In what ways do we test God today? Oh, we don't do that. We believe. I believe. Our church believes. We believe. The scripture teaches. Salvation is by grace alone. How do you know it's by grace alone? Why don't you go do some really bad sin to prove that it's by grace alone? That is testing God. It is presumption. Wait a minute. Isn't it by grace alone? Yes, it is. God has spoken. Why are you testing God? We test him all the time because we don't believe him. The scripture says, and we say, eh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That is interesting. The scripture says to test and see that God will keep his promises. Stand on what God has told you to do. But if you're running away from God's will, thinking that by running away from God's will, you're going to show that God's really treating you with grace, you're in deep trouble. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It is interesting, the idea of going to a mountain. This may, in fact, have been a vision. Sometimes I begin to think this is like a vision of all the empires forever. But that could be wrong. It could be the the Roman Empire and the existing empires of the time. Showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Could Satan have really fulfilled that promise? I'll give them all to you. We do know that Satan has a certain authority being granted by God to operate as the prince of this world. And he's saying, all you've got to do is bow down to me and I will give it all to you. Everything that exists, I will give it to you. Could he have done it? He might be able to. He might have done it. Well, well, that's true. But let's say he was speaking the truth. 
And C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters comments, you know, we need to remember demons lie, even to themselves. Okay? But let's say for a moment, he gave it all to Jesus. All the kingdoms of the world are yours. We would have all died in our sin because Jesus would not have died to pay the penalty for the sin that you and I have committed. Huh. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, shall you serve. Let me give you the bottom line of all of this. Satan has one desire in all these temptations. And that is to get Jesus to do one thing apart from the will of the Father. All it would have taken is one thing apart from the will of the Father and Jesus would have not been the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the human being, would be a sinner and he would not have been the perfect sacrifice necessary to take on the sins of the world. All Satan wanted was one act of defiance to the will of God. What is the bottom line of all of this for us? Number one? Huh? That's all he wants from us. Number one, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice because he never, ever yielded to temptation. Number two, every piece of equipment that he had, the Spirit and the Word, we have to struggle with temptation. Why don't we successfully do it? Eh, we'll do it tomorrow. Later. And the bottom line is, who are you going to worship? Satan said, all you have to do is bow down and everything will be yours. Probably a lie, could be the truth, who knows? But Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That right there is life as it was meant to be. The nation of Israel that we studied last year, year before last, idolatry, idolatry, let's go worship this, let's go serve this. And we laughed at them and said, we would never be like that. And we spend our lives chasing after every squirrel that pops itself up and says, come worship me. Because we don't believe That God alone is to be worshipped and God alone is to be served. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It is interesting to me. It doesn't really ever say that he turned the stones into bread. It says the angels showed up to take care of him. Why? Every piece of power that he utilized is the same power that is available to us today. 
And God will send his ministering angels to take care of our needs. Now, there will come a time when he's going to start generating bread. And we'll get there. You know, huge basketfuls of bread. But he's going to do that in accordance with the will of the Father. We are way out of time. But one more comment and we'll be done. My favorite novel... The Brothers Karamazov, written by Dostoevsky, has a wonderful section in it called The Grand Inquisitor. In the book, there are three brothers. One of them represents the spiritual life. One of them represents the intellectual life. He's the atheist. And one of them represents, well, the let's have a really good time life. And throughout the book, the intellectual atheist is arguing with his brother, and they're brothers, and they're nice to each other, arguing with his brother about why there is no God. And he says, let me tell you a story. And he makes a story up about, during the Spanish Inquisition, the Grand Inquisitor, who is the person, the cardinal in charge of all the Inquisition, finds Jesus walking the street. And he drags him in, and he's going to kill him. And he knows who he is. And his argument to Jesus is, wouldn't it have been better for humanity if you had just given in to the temptations? When they offered you bread, why didn't you just say, sure, and make bread for everybody? Because everybody wants bread. Wouldn't it have been easier for humanity? But you wouldn't let humanity take the easy path. Wouldn't it have been better if you had just jumped off the tower and there would have been a miracle and people who didn't care about you would have worshipped the miracle. But you wouldn't let people off the hook. You wanted people to choose you. You were unfair to humanity. It's an interesting story. In fact, the the chapter called The Grand Inquisitor is actually sometimes published as a separate book because of the discussion. The reality is, Jesus, the God-man, is the perfect sacrifice because, as the book of Hebrews says, just like us, he was tempted, just like you and me, yet without sin. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that Christ did not yield to the temptation, did not take the easy path. I pray, Lord, that we too would learn to fight temptation through the word of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.